but the word of God reads that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. You know, as I think about this, no revival has ever begun as a result of human effort or ability. Much like salvation, revival is a divine gift. It is a divine bestowment. It is a grace of God poured out and unmerited by man. I mean, simply put, revival does not occur according to our workings. Believers can pray for revival, desire revival, fast for revival, but in the end, God determines if and when revival will occur. And let me clearly state that we as believers, as believers in Jesus Christ, should pray for revival, desire revival, fast for revival. We should. I mean, I think the times really dictate the desperateness of our situation, and it is much needed in every church. The history of revivals tells us that amazing supernatural things occur when a divine move of God's Spirit falls upon the church. Take the Great Awakening, for example, perhaps the greatest move of God's Spirit in the United States. There were many pieces that came together to bring this about. There was George Whitfield experiencing revival in Oxford, along with Charles and John Wesley, who would also be used in a great manner as part of this. There was Jonathan Edwards, whom was diligently praying and beseeching the Lord, and the Spirit of God fell upon Jonathan Edwards. There were the people in New England, many of them unknown to us to this day, that earnestly prayed for a genuine move of God among the people. And much like what we do here, when we gather here each day to pray, many are doing, and it needs to continue to be done. So someone might ask, why revival? And the answer is simple, at least in my definition. We need the power of God, and we need the presence of God to move once again in the churches and in individual lives. We need divine unction once again. We need Holy Ghost power, and we need the holiness of God to invade our lives. I have a terrible fear and this fear is simply this. I think in many circles, we have rationalized God to work in conformity with the world rather than God ordering the events of the world and being the transcendent supernatural God that he is. You might hear the term, we put him in a box. And I think when we're praying and we're asking God, we're asking God to do that which is supernatural, that which transcends the limitations of our humanness. We need revival. We need our spiritual eyes to be open and our hearts to be awakened to God, the, the very God who spoke all things into existence, to the Christ who upholds all things by the word of his power. Brothers and sisters, the need is for us as believers to seek God for his presence, for his spirit, to seek God for the revival of hearts and the awakening, to seek God so that the glory of God and the glory of Christ would again fill his church. That's what we need. If you take a look at our text here in uh, Ephesians 3.16, right, 
in chapter 3, Paul summarizes all of the doctrinal exhortations that he wrote to the Ephesians. And he shares how Gentiles are fellow heirs of Christ and partakers of the promise of salvation. And it is in light of these doctrinal truths that Paul breaks forth in this amazing crescendo of praise and prayer for the believers in verses 14 through 22. And what is his prayer? His prayer is that for them that they would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That word might, also other translations would put it as power. The root word there is the the Greek word dunamis. Uh, A lot of times that's mistakenly said that it means dynamite. It doesn't mean dynamite. It means power enabled by God. It's God's power. It's that which God would do in the life of the believers. Which one of us can say, Lord, we don't need that enabling power of God. We desperately need that enabling power of God. There's a lot of dead men preaching dead words to dead people all across, all across the world in the name of Christ. And that is why we need revival, because there is power in revival. And that power is that which comes from God through the Holy Spirit. Many can know the Word of God, but unfortunately, fewer come to the realization of the power of the Holy Ghost. Paul's desire for the church at Ephesus was that they would be strengthened with might. They would be strengthened with dunamis. They would be strengthened with God's enabling power by his spirit. Now, I'm not one of those who will say that in order for revival to occur, everything in the church has to be perfect. History tells us differently. History tells us that revivals have occurred when things were not perfect. As a matter of fact, when things were bad. And all you have to do is look at the Reformation. It was perhaps the darkest hour of church history, right? When conditions of the church are suffering, God has at times in history stepped in and brought amazing revival. I was reading Duncan Campbell's personal account of the revival that occurred on the Isle of Lewis in 1949. And one of the things that Duncan Campbell states is he states that the great doctrines of the church were still being believed at that time. They had not departed necessarily into, you know, outlandish liberalism They were holding to the doctrines of justification by faith and sanctification and the great doctrines. But he goes on to say this, which is pretty amazing. He goes on to say, but then it is possible to have a name and to live and yet be dead. That a man can be orthodox in sentiment and loose loose in practice. In Ephesians 3, Paul's heart was that this might, this power would empower men and women by the very spirit of God. And I I, want to reemphasize that point. We must draw dependency upon the Holy Spirit. We must lean upon the Holy Spirit and pray for the Spirit to move into the hearts 
of men and move in the church. And so we should pray, beloved, in similar manner, desirous for the things of God, desirous for a move of his spirit, desirous for the name of God, that the name of God would be glorified and desirous for the souls of people. Duncan Campbell speaks of the impact of the revival. And he brings two things that he said were very specific that occurred in that revival. The first was an awareness of God, and specifically an awareness of the presence of God. There was a deep and profound awareness of the presence of God. He talks about people working in the fields when the Spirit of God came upon them in an amazing supernatural way. He speaks of bars that emptied out, dance halls that emptied out, and the people fleeing to the church to hear a word of God. Deep and profound conviction came upon the most degenerate of people and brought them to a saving knowledge and a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Deep conviction even came upon the righteous and the known devout, causing them to fall into the uh, to fall in the presence of God, and even they would repent. Duncan Campbell also talked about a deep conviction of sin. Many were so overwhelmed with the conviction of sin that they wept bitter tears, and some even passed out in the midst of that conviction. And similar experiences, by the way, were recorded during the Great Awakening as well, as men of God stood in the pulpit and preached the Word of God, and a deep sense of conviction fell upon them, and and that was recorded. No longer to them was sin a mistake. No longer was sin, you know, I just missed the mark. No longer was it trivial, but rather the Spirit of God brought about deep repentance in those that were affected by this revival. And so what precedes revival? Well, what What preceded this great move of God? What preceded the revival on the Isle of Lewis and others? It is always preceded by a few faithful people praying consistently and unrelentingly for revival. These are the intercessors, the prayer warriors, the ones believing God for that supernatural move of God. And here we are in that very same capacity. Here we are 900 some odd days later, seeking God, begging God for a move of God's spirit. And I pray that each and every one of us are desperate for a move of God. You know, in Psalm 79, Verse 9, we we hear a sound of this desperation in this imprecatory psalm. In verse 9, the psalmist cries out, 
Hear us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. I like this quote from Leonard Ravenhill. He says, the world is not waiting for a new definition of the gospel, but for a new demonstration of the power of the gospel. Church, that's what's needed today. Many churches have good doctrine. Many churches have good liturgy. Many churches are orthodox in all their beliefs. But oh, that God would send a demonstration of that power to fall upon the church again. That people would be overwhelmed by the presence of God. That people would have a deep conviction of sin that people would cry out for mercy, and that the Spirit of God would invade our churches with authority and power. Listen, we're 900 days into this, and that is excluding, I hope, our personal prayers for revival, that we're continuing to press in when we're alone with God in prayer. And I want to issue a caution, too, And that caution is, in this pursuit of prayer, there is a danger of the regularity of prayer prayer, turning into a routine of prayer. Coming out of the routine with no expectations at all, but following the process. Oh, my prayer for this group, my prayer for myself, my prayer for my churches is that we would arouse ourselves to faith, encourage each other to press on, to continue to press on in the days, in the months, and in the years to come, and that that pressing on gets translated into joyous expectation and belief that God will move among us and among our nations. The Apostle Paul's heart was just that. At the end of chapter 3, he writes of his desire in verse 19. He says, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's heart is that they would be filled, I love this, with all of the fullness of God. That should be our prayer, that we all would be filled with all the fullness of God, the fullness that surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond the mind. It goes beyond the intellect and reaches to the deepest recesses of our soul. Paul kind of uses a play on words in that verse, right? He says, one, that you would be filled. And that word simply means to make full, to be complete. But what is he asking to be filled with? Well, he says to be filled with the fullness. The sum total is what it means. The superabundance, that we would be filled with all of the fullness of God. It's kind of like saying we'd be filled with filled, right? But we want to be filled with the fullness of God, his desire, his heart, is that the Ephesian Christians 
would be filled to overflowing, overflowing. You know, that word filled in the New Testament in the Greek takes two connotations. One way it means to, uh, like you taking a sail and the sail being billowed by the wind. And as it is billowed, billowed by the wind, it is pushed along the waters. The second means, you know, you take a glass and you fill it to overflowing. Either way, the heart of Paul was that the Ephesians would be filled. Either way, the desire of our hearts should be that we, as believers, would be filled with all of the fullness of God. And the question begs, well, how is that done? How is that achieved? And Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.20, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above, uh, above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. It is a work of God. Revival is a work of God. God is able to do this. We need to continue on with fervency, with passion, with diligence. It does not matter what you feel right now. If we are tired and discouraged, let's continue to press on until God hears from heaven and brings rains and showers of revival into our lives and into our churches. May the Lord be glorified and magnified in everything. Amen.